on paper, spending £30 to go to Oxford on the train and seeing the recording of a Christmas concert by the Oxford Philharmonic Orchestra seemed like, at the time of accepting the invitation, a bit of an extravagance. The Oxford Philharmonic's programme is short, contains some old familiars, Abide With Me, Hallelujah Chorus, Rogers and Hammerstein's You'll Never Walk Alone, and what Christmas concert is complete without some music by John Rutter too, all of it dedicated to the work of those developing the Covid vaccine at Oxford University. Compared to the last time I was in Oxford to attend a Beethoven symposium, was it this year or last, I can't really remember, the live music making experience is entirely different. Programmes are different, pragmatic artistic responses contained within a 16 by 9 crop, varying angles, a range of different coloured lights if the budget allows, and if you're really lucky, a bit of depth of field too. No longer do I find myself sitting in a rehearsal wondering how best to write about a piece of music in order to get more people to consider experiencing it live. Now I sit in a kind of hermetically sealed box watching musicians shift through a series of postures in their seats according to whether they're playing or waiting to play. When they play, the textures they create individually and collectively suggest that everything is just as it was and that nothing has changed. When they stop and wait for the producer to issue the next instruction across the talkback, they sit back and relax, waiting in silence for the next command. This stop-start approach to music making is of course necessary. It's a recording session. Some orchestras and ensembles have made a point of saying how they're recording as live. Others commit to creating recorded experiences. Very few stream live. Hello. Hi, John. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, as you were. Yes. Uh, and I, what a fantastic cardigan. Thank Can you. We just take a moment to, to look at. Yeah, it's just. Was that an accident or was that deliberately chosen? So, sorry, say that again. Or was that uh, an accidental choice or was that deliberately chosen? What, what the, the. The cardigan. Oh, I'm always well, no, no, just, just one of my old cardigans that I. <laughs> it keeps me warm while I've got my jacket off. Well, no, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Um, I think we're doing a very quick interview, if that's right. Fine, that absolutely, okay? yes. I'm doing it in audio. Is that, is that all right? Yes. For you? Would you like me to take this off? Or? Well, I mean, what? I'd like to see your face. Yeah. <laughs> it's always I don't want to see my face. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry to yeah. know. No, that's all. No, that's if all. it's all right, if I take mine off. Absolutely, please do. Tell me who you are and what you do, please. Okay, sir. my name is Marios Papadopoulos, and I am the music director of this wonderful orchestra, the Oxford Philharmonic Orchestra. How long have you been musical director? Because I've received lots of brochures about various seasons where I've seen your face. You have a recognisable face. So I'm wondering how long you have been musical director. Thank you. Well, um, blame it on me. I founded this orchestra. <laughs> oh, I see. Ah, OK. There are no predecessors. You are the first one. I'm afraid so. Uh, die hard. <laughs> You're being incredibly self-deprecating. Why did you set it up? Well, it was uh, a number of reasons, really. I was involved in the musical life of Oxford for a number of years, and I saw an opportunity. Uh, but also for completely selfish reasons. I wanted a platform of my, of my own, uh, with wonderful musicians and most importantly a discerning audience how did you, god you're you're really good at this aren't you you've done this before how did you what was the biggest challenge for you do you think setting it up because i recognize that when i graduated from university i wanted to conduct and so i set up my own orchestra for a concert and then after that i never did any more but i i you've clearly persisted what was the biggest challenge and how did you overcome it 
Well, I think one of the biggest problems is actually to be to be recognized and acknowledged. So, uh, all right, we can put on a concert. Will we get an audience? Uh, and uh, the beginning, yes, we were struggling. But then one of the major projects that I undertook, I think in our second year, which I think was a watershed moment, was when we did all the Beethoven symphonies and piano concertos, which I directed from the keyboard, and I invited our good friend John Suchet to introduce them. And that was very popular. And that really established the orchestra. And then shortly afterwards, the university um, uh, embraced us uh, and appointed us as their first ever orchestra in residence. Uh, and, and that again, all of a sudden people thought, ah, there must be, there must be something to them. <laughs> They've got a badge now. They've got a badge now. Um, what has, you were intending to do uh, a whole Beethoven season this year, because I remember receiving that, yeah. that brochure, uh, and I think I came for a rehearsal of Beethoven 5. I think I did. Uh, whenever that was, what has this year been like for you as a conductor? It's been it's, it's been terrible, uh, as you say. We had to abandon most of our plans. There were 40, 40 events in the festival, the by far the biggest celebration of Beethoven's anniversary anywhere in the UK. Uh, so we are we managed to squeeze in about five or six uh, before lockdown. Uh, so we abandoned many of the plans, but we're hoping to do at least some of it. Uh, in 21, uh, COVID allowing. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it's one of those things. Uh, what is it like being back today? I mean, this is my third recording that I've attended and uh, it strikes me that there's a, um, there's a sort of a stop-start nature to recording, which is not unlike the, the lockdown experience as an audience member because you sort of think that it's going to come back and then actually it doesn't. I'm wondering what it's like for you conducting a recording? Well, uh, any recording uh, is something actually that I enjoy doing a great deal. Uh, I am, uh, I do subscribe a little bit to the uh, Glenn Gould um, uh, philosophy uh, as a pianist as well, uh, and so I don't mind recordings at all. What is the Glenn Gould philosophy? Please remind me. Well, he hated audiences. <laughs> I don't hate audiences. I don't hate audiences. But you know, if I can maybe draw a parallel to maybe a sculptor at work. So you keep sculpting and maybe something comes off or it doesn't work. You start again and you work on it. That's a process that can be uh, undertaken in a, in a recording studio to sculpt what you might consider, at least for the moment, the perfect um, you know, piece of art. Um, uh, concert is a different experience. You know, it, it happens you know, on, on the spur of the moment. Uh, and in some ways, it doesn't always represent you at your best. You know, you may be or you may not be. Is that fair? Yeah. I think it's very interesting. I mean, that's the, the reason for asking. because um, What I've overlooked in a lot of my listening and thinking and writing over the past few months is that recording is, as a process, something that musicians, some musicians, enjoy. I, and a lot of others this year, have spent a lot of time moping around about the lack of live, some even bemoaning how pre-records are a poor substitute. 
The point is, is that they're different and both are valuable. Proceedings get underway inside the Sheldonian Theatre with two sing-throughs of Abide With Me, with choristers from Oxford who stand the obligatory two metres apart from one another in the gallery overlooking the audience. The intense melancholy spun out by bows sweeping gently across strings brings an irony into focus. We're sat here in our distant seats, watching a similarly distanced orchestra and choir record music for a digital concert dedicated to scientists who have discovered a vaccine which could help us get out of this mess. Music sung by choristers who quite rightly observe social distancing inside the building, but didn't need to outside whilst they waited to come in. The rules that bring everyone together for this now familiar live musical experience, they're not about safeguarding one another's health, they're about insurance policies. The rules are more the thing the music world is doing battle with, not the virus. When John Rutter glides into the theatre in his white bow tie, mask and coattails, there's a distinct change in energy. Rutter and the world premiere recording of his newest Christmas gift, Joseph's Carol, is the main event for this rather strange afternoon jaunt to Oxford. He sets down his worn brown leather briefcase on the floor and bends down to open it, revealing the modest tools he needs to bring his work to life. Rutter a name synonymous with Christmas, a name burned into the memories of countless individuals who mark Christmas, childhood memories set to beautiful melodies and touching harmonies. A composer who has shaped so many people's experience of Christmas, a composer who actually exists in real life and is there below me, stood on a podium with his open briefcase on the floor behind him. Is there anyone you would like to speak to, John? asks Nicky, the PR, who had invited me for the afternoon. The question has a surreal edge to it, though Nicky doesn't necessarily realise this at the time. Earlier on in the day, I was arranging interviews with two other high-profile performers for a different story. Arrangements being made via two, three or maybe four intermediaries, all of whom believed that an interview could only go ahead if the questions were pre-agreed and an outline of the 20-minute interview experience was detailed and agreed as well. If there's anything that is guaranteed to drain the energy from any interaction, it is the assumption that it can only work if everyone knows precisely what is going to be talked about in advance. That isn't journalism, it's also not content. I came to Oxford with no expectations to speak to anyone. I came only to be in amongst musicians, to get a sense of an event and to capture the resulting experience. That was enough for me. And now I'm here, sat here in a tatty jumper with a stupid mask, stopping much-needed non-verbal communication, being asked if there is anyone I'd like to talk to before I leave. There are only three people, potentially. The Oxford Philharmonic Music Director, Marios, tenor Bryn Turfel, and John Rutter himself. Mr Rutter, perhaps, I say to Nicky, almost apologetically, maybe Mr Turfel. I'll see what I can do. And then she disappears, all very Nicky, textbook Nicky. 
and then it all gets exciting again. In a flash, I'm transported back a year to all those trips that marvellous classical music PRs have invited me on to talk to wonderful people about the thing I love and they love. All of them opportunities to be present in a space where magic happens so that the magic of it can be documented and shared to a wider audience. The crushing silliness of over-engineered, ill-informed interviews are in the moment now a distant memory. In its place, the casual spontaneity built on trust and rapport that yields the richest of content opportunities. Like pre-COVID days, like the old days, back in the game. a tough interview uh, the last time i saw you you did the proms you did a you did a sondheim prom uh with simon russell beale and another chap who was uh, slightly shorter than you very handsome daniel and, evans yeah no uh, daniel evans and another chap who was in downton i can't remember his name oh, yeah. and he sang something from company anyway uh, that's the last time i saw you doing everybody needs to have a maid oh yes uh, and i recall you being quite camp on stage what was your memory of that particular event? I, th- I think we were you all were good. We, we were a, a jolly band together for that number, and of course, Mr. Sondheim was was incredibly happy to have that performed that evening. But what a glorious evening it was! It was. Yes, it was. Culminating in some magnificent performances. Did it, did it come with a lot of rehearsals? I mean, it all looked very naturalistic and sort of like it had all been done that afternoon and that was it. But were there a lot of rehearsals for it? There were. There were rehearsals uh, in Henrywood Hall a couple of days before. Just that we get the, the dancing correct and our... Yes, because there was quite a lot of choreography to it. Entrances and exits, yes. For, for a piece like that, you have to rehearse it somehow. I have to, otherwise... I'm two left feet. I'd be treading on Simon Russell Beale's feet, <laughs> As I recall, I which wouldn't part help of the appeal, his, wasn't it? I think that was part of the entertainment for his acting. No. <laughs> um, uh, and you did Sweeney Todd as well, the Opera House. Is that right? I didn't do it for the Opera House. I did it for the English National Opera with um, okay. with uh, D- Dame Emma Thompson, of course. Well, we also did it in New York, so. Uh, with the New York Philharmonic, but I'm on my way, hopefully, fingers crossed, to Zurich to do it in January. Right. So that'll be my first opera back since uh, quite uh, some time. Um, but Zurich have been very good at putting on performances until the la- latest lockdown. They had a new Boris Godunov, and they were rehearsing Simone Boccanegra, if I remember rightly. So let's uh, cross fingers that Sweeney will come back in a different... Uh, guys, of course, the chorus might be in a different yeah. room, the orchestra might be in, in a different hall, the music will be piped in through speakers, you know, not, not the live performance of Sweeney. But Does, if that, does that disappoint you at no. all as a performer, or are you thinking, well, at least we're doing it? I mean, I don't know, because I'm not a performer. No, uh, if there's a piece where you can uh, manipulate a situation, maybe Sweeney is it, uh, you know. Sweeney can be performed with four people in the orchestra and six people in the company. Uh, uh, so, 
who knows? Um, I'm hoping it'll it'll go ahead. If I know the management of of Zurich, they'll they'll do everything that's uh, possible to put it on. One doesn't like to make national stereotypes. One would hope that that if anybody can make it happen, they can. Uh, what have you been doing today, sir? Tell me what we've been doing. What I've been seeing today. Well, um, uh, I was um, introduced to the Oxford Philharmonic. Uh, in the Wallace Collection Museum where we did a, a sponsorship evening to raise some funds and money for this particular group of magnificent musicians. Uh, I was supposed to do a Wagnerian concert here but the pandemic um, put a, a, a slight uh, hurdle in front of that one which might be rescheduled anyway but I was asked to come and perform in this as a, as a little um, thank you recognition for the incredible and dedicated hard work of the vaccine uh, scientists and uh, what timing in the last couple of days of, of course we've all been glued to the news about this vaccine that we've been praying for to bring back our lives to some sort of no normality hopefully towards the summer where I will be hopefully singing Falstaff for Wasfikani in the Grange Park Opera um, the opera in the woods so um, crossing, fi crossing fingers for that as well What is it like not being able to perform or having to bargain about when you can perform? Um, what's, it not, what's it like not performing since January? I know, it's a very tortured question isn't it? No, Well no, it's, it's, uh, it's a question that we're all facing uh, even uh, a youngster in the beginning of their career or somebody that's fully established in their career I have a tax bill to pay in January and I haven't worked since last January. So it's not a very comfortable uh, situation. Or is it the logistics first or is that... So my assumption is that it's the emotions first that you are sort of... You know, the emotions associated with performing that you are denied. But you, you go to the log logistics... You talk about it as, obviously, as work, because it is. But Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm yeah. self-employed yeah. and uh, unfortunately uh, whatever government or representative of government hasn't really... Um, been forthcoming in helping um, anybody that's self-employed uh, I haven't heard anything that's going to help what I've just mentioned young singers in the beginning of their career or, or we are fully established people um, uh, sadly that they didn't um, bring something onto the table before the vaccine came out so the vaccine's here now so mm. we so will, we will remember yes so, so your thinking is that they didn't uh, now the vaccine is here all of those other um, support networks or support processes aren't perhaps quite so important or perceived to be quite so important well um, of course the, uh, you know, I remember during the pandemic people were going to uh, Ascot to the mm. races uh, they're thinking of bringing fans back to football games so the, um, is, is that the barometer that we are going to see the challenge of bringing people together or uh, people in aeroplanes what is the difference uh, with having an opera house that has 60% capacity maybe you know but this will come back now the vaccines here and hopefully towards the summer maybe we could we can start thinking of of our profession uh, gradually coming back what do you think will be different when it comes back uh, of course, uh, we all have to uh, be regulated and uh, with the stipulations of, of safety and cleanliness and uh, 
obviously being on, a, on an opera stage uh, doing some, some kind of entertainment in, 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 uh, in any uh, uh, capacity on that stage involves people uh, acting and, and you know, the concept of any director has to have people working together and it'll be interesting how, it, how, how productions will develop because of this and, and we'll have to be a part of that. Maybe our stage will be a gr big grid and that we're not supposed to move from, it'll be a drafts game. It'll be like playing chess. <laughs> I think we're going to have to get used to it. Uh, one final question. Yeah. What, uh, what one thing would you like to take from this year into next year? Mm. Of course, when all my work stopped, um, I did start singing things and recording things at home for charities and for for different events, for calendars, for for I've just I've just sang um, chestnuts roasting on an open fire for for the Dinas Powis Music Festival to hopefully help them with with some money. Um, Hopefully, I'll get better equipment in my home. I have absolutely nothing. You're holding a, a brand spanking new, very impressive microphone. Hey, look, you flirt. I tell you what, I, I have nothing at home, so that's going, that's going to change. So I'm going to have sound equipment. So I'm going to have some lighting. So I'm more interested now in what I can do myself and, uh, and maybe build upon that. Um, that technically uh, means that the, we, on some level, we'd be in competition with each other. No, I think you're <laughs> you, you're far yeah. in advance. I wouldn't get a Zoom H6, really, Bryn. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd just go with a Tascam, really. Just spend about fifty quid. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. Uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate. It. Could I maybe get a picture? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But actually, it needs to be self. I find myself pacing whilst I'm waiting to speak to Rutter. A familiar feeling from Eurovision days returns in a flash whilst I mentally clock how much the other journalist in the space has had so far. This seems a rather futile process given that I, like everyone else in the world, have suffered an internal body clock malfunction this year. The overriding emotion is one of impatience, possibly even a sense of competition. Utterly ridiculous, I tell myself, but so very familiar when you're given the unexpected opportunity to connect with a celebrity who actually means something. Go there for a I've I got your SD card card in place. <laughs> it is a pleasure to meet you, it really is. Oh, thank it, you. Um, uh, and I may have to fanboy you just a bit, mm. uh, just for a moment. But before we get on to that, can you, uh, I'm going to record this for a podcast. Yeah. So I'm cutting this interview with, with Bryn's interview. No, and of and um, I think I can probably be a little bit naughty. Um, can you? Can no, I? no one's going to see, are they? I, no, 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 they're not. No. No. <laughs> but I'll keep <laughs> away. Yes, sure. Uh, how lovely. <laughs> what a okay. lovely thing. No, Thank you. Um, for the purposes of the, the record, can you tell me who you are and what you do, please? I'm John Rutter, composer and conductor, and very privileged to be part of this incredible project here in Oxford. Have you been awash with ideas and inspiration this year? Well, um, I've... Let's say like painting the garage, I've got round to a lot of musical jobs that I might not have got round to if I hadn't had all this time available at home and no touring, no travelling. And so I've composed a bit, but what I've done quite a lot of is revisit 
old pieces of music I've done and recast them or computer typeset them and done things like that. I've seen things on social media of you going through old scores at the piano, actually. I think I've seen videos of you doing that. Yes, that's absolutely right. um, This is one of the things that I've been meaning to do for years but never got round to. Uh, People have said to me from time to time, look, um, I quite like to play some of your choral pieces at home by myself on the piano because I haven't got a choir in my living room and could you do piano versions of them and I've said yes 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 I'll get round to it finally 2020 was the year that I did it so I painted the garage if you see what I mean and uh, (laughs) and that that's great but what about inspiration? I mean, as, a, as someone who, who is prolific, I'm wondering whether this year of tumultuous change has brought about all sorts of different ideas. Um, not really, okay. uh, because as a composer, you're used to being a backroom boy. We work in isolation anyway, and what produces the inspiration is usually the deadline. And to be honest with you, there haven't been as many deadlines because there haven't been as many performances. I mean, it's a history of cancellations through this year, which has been really pretty awful for performing musicians. And so I must say it was a stimulus to me to be given the opportunity to write something specially for a real live occasion happening here in Oxford. You describe being a composer as being a backroom boy. Are you being deliberately self-effacing? Are you a, I mean, you strike me as a self-effacing individual. Well, I'm a composer and conductor, and as a composer you can be as shy as you like, but as a conductor there's no mileage in being a shrinking violet. <laughs> you, you, you actually have to exert a little bit of authority, and so let's say there are two sides to me. The um, composing side is one where I actually like to be left alone, but the great thing about conducting is that it's social that you are getting together live in the flesh. And despite all the difficulties, despite all the constraints of social distancing, we're managing to do it. We're finding a way. And yet there is, there is a paradox in what you're saying. So I have led you up a small garden path. There is a paradox in what you're saying because I'd say that for my generation and the generation before me, uh, your work, your name, is synonymous with participatory music-making. And so that makes you a bit of a, you know, you may feel uncomfortable about this, but that makes you a bit of a hero. That makes you a bit of a celebrity. I haven't written much solo literature, it's true. And I have been particularly associated with choirs and choral music all my life, probably because I started life as a chorister in my school chapel choir. I loved singing from when I was just a little kid, and it was only a short step from singing in choirs to writing music for choirs. And I've always enjoyed working with choirs, professional and amateur, of all different kinds and in all different countries. I love working with orchestras also, but it's probably true that I'm associated more with choirs. But I'm, I'm going to push you a little bit further and say I wonder whether it's to do with your musical language, your harmonic language, and the fact that those two things combined are instantly accessible, which is what, you know, that's what speaks to me. That's the fanboy element. Well... I don't Does be- that make you feel uncomfortable? No, not at all. I don't believe in shutting people out from the experience of music. And you can write on many different levels and in many different ways. When Beethoven wrote his late string quartets, he probably didn't care if there was a big audience listening to them. He was writing them for him as a testament. 
And that's something I've always found very difficult to do because when I write a piece, I imagine it in performance and I look forward to perhaps conducting it in performance. And so, yeah, um, I'm... You're writing for yourself then, really, aren't you? Because you want to have the audience um, I, You must never write to please an audience as such. I mean, that's writing down, and I think that's, that's not a good way to write. But at the same time, most composers do consider their audience to the extent of wanting to open out to them. And I would rather write something that touches people's hearts than something that leaves them cold. And I think that would probably be on most composers' tombstones, you know, he or she touched people's hearts. Um, I think we would all like that secretly. You do have the best job, I'd suggest. Do you think that you have the best job? Uh, I would do it even if I didn't get paid. And so in that sense, it's a terrific job. Don't let's minimise the lonely hours you spend staring at the blank manuscript paper with the deadline looming because there's no way I can make that interesting, romantic or fun. It's a task which has to be done. Um, Any of you listening who remember writing school essays where you had to do your 800 words by next Tuesday will know just what I mean and it never gets easier. (laughs) Uh, I I wonder whether you're aware of the joy that your work brings. People do tell me, and and generally people who don't enjoy what you write, and of course any composer has plenty of non-fans, but generally they're polite and they keep that to themselves, and after all they can always change channels, as it were, and listen to something else. If you haven't got anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Uh, Usually the musical world is a polite and appreciative one. And, um, you know, the political world is very, very different, where one politician finds it almost impossible to give credit to another. And generally in the musical world, we rejoice in each other's successes. And if we have enjoyed something, we repay the enjoyment we have had by the expression of appreciation. And so that is something that we all hope for, And I'm fortunate that, of course, in this age of social media and the internet, um, it's quicker to actually dash off a little email just saying, really liked your piece, um, than it was in the old days when you had to pull out the writing paper and the quill pen and, um, uh, you know, put something into 500 elegant words. You don't have to do that now. And appreciation is lovely. Um, So don't let's pretend that we don't like to have it. This is my final question, then I need to get a very quick picture together, but it won't take very long. Uh, Final question is, what will you take away from this year into next year? Hope. Um, Because things have been extremely difficult, but if you don't motor on with hope, then you might as well give up. And so that is the quality I want to carry forward into 2021 for musicians everywhere and for the world thank you very much boom thank you mr rutter we stand for another selfie and after a short break and the other members of what i now realize was a bit of a pre-embargo press junket convene in distant seats back in the gallery a hush passes over the theater rutter steps up to the podium we hear alex the producer speak from somewhere where we can't see him Okay, thank you very much. Do you want to 
The music Rutter has written is classic. Warm strings create a soft, reassuring pillow on which Turfle's carefully placed voice gently rests. Beautifully balanced melodies that caress the soul, supported by harmonic progressions that edges to and fro from melancholy, hope and pain. It's difficult not to hear the carol as something that goes beyond Christmas, an anthem for a city proud for the vaccine its university has discovered. As we tread carefully through the final verse and a modest descant stretches the bittersweet tension just a little bit further, there's a glimmer that all is not lost. Those vital connections which have proved so important to me over the past few years are still there and they're still active.